Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Welcome to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. Our guest today is retired Navy SEAL Chief Eddie Gallagher. And for almost 20 years, Chief Gallagher served on the elite SEAL teams, deploying eight times to Africa, Afghanistan, and Iraq. It was on his last deployment that things got extremely violent, as U.S. and Iraqi forces fought to clear the death grip ISIS had on the city of Mosul. And it was there that SEAL Team 7 began to turn against itself, and Gallagher would eventually be charged with murder. Murder of a terrorist. The story played out on national news several times. First, when Gallagher was suddenly arrested at a medical facility where he was receiving treatment for traumatic brain injuries, he was taken to a military brig and held in solitary confinement without being told what he'd been arrested for or how long he would be there. Gallagher would spend nine months in prison, largely being denied medical treatment and access to his own legal team. The government traumatized his family, and the press vilified him as a monster. And once President Trump began tweeting about the case, well, it made it even more polarizing and drew even further media scrutiny. Even after a jury of his peers found him innocent of murdering an ISIS fighter, there still exists a perception that Chief Gallagher got away with murder and was pardoned by President Trump. I recently had a chance to talk with Chief Gallagher for an hour about his new book, The Man in the Arena, From Fighting ISIS to Fighting for My Freedom. During this interview, the chief doesn't hold back. Gallagher talks about his fellow SEAL Team platoon members that turned against him and conspired to frame him for war crimes, why the Naval Special Warfare leadership didn't back him up, and we even talk about exactly what happened that day, where they brought a half-dead terrorist to the SEAL compound for medical aid, and the grim photo of him posing with the body and a hunting knife. Whether you agree or disagree with what you've heard and read, this is a story where even the truth sounds crazier than fiction. Navy SEAL Chief Retired Eddie Gallagher, welcome to Ion Veterans. Great to have you, Chief. Thank you. I thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, before we get into the book, The Man in the Arena, From Fighting ISIS to Fighting for My Freedom, I just wanted to let you personally know that I actually started preparing for this years ago. I spoke with Paul Zoldra of Task and Purpose, and he, as a witness, was the agent in charge with investigating this entire situation. Correct, yeah. So basically the gist of this case is that 
at least during or sometime after the deployment of this these SEALs from SEAL Team 7, a number of SEALs inside Gallagher's platoon brought up allegations of war crimes. Uh, to he was attending the Article 32, which eventually led to the murder trial. The presidential tweets, uh, the eventual acquittal of murder charges and war crimes, except for the picture, of course. Um, one, I want to thank you for your time and to ask, you know, was writing a book about this something that you instantly wanted to do as you began this experience to kind of clear your name? Or was this something that kind of creeped up as you processed what had happened after the acquittal? Uh, it was uh, definitely not something I wanted to do. It wasn't a decision I made right away, but uh, I was advised by a lot of people that, you know, you should write the book, you should tell the story. A lot of, a lot of good friends of mine were like, you know, this, this isn't just some normal, you know, story. This is, this is insane. Uh, the story's crazy. There's a lot of twists and turns. So, and they said, you know, if you don't write the book, no one will know the truth. You know, the, the media had pretty much slandered me for two years, uh, put out a bunch of misinformation and half truths as, as this thing was going on. And, uh, they, there's really no recourse. Uh, you know, we, we uh, filed uh, some IG complaints against the Navy once once the trial was over because of all the uh, corruption and everything that had happened. And of course, the Navy was like, nope, we didn't do anything wrong. Move on. Um, so, you know, I, I decided that's when I decided, I was like, you know what, I'm going to tell my side of the story, what me and my family went through uh, during this whole ordeal. And then also highlight the fact my wife and brother did during this whole thing, which is, I mean, they took on the media and the government um, and won. You know, so and that's no easy feat. That's uh, that took day in, day out work. And I can't express enough how much those those two are heroes to me. So I wanted to highlight that in the book and then also hide the fact that I was demonized for wanting to do my job. Um, the the Navy prosecutors uh, and my command and NCIS uh, tried to demonize me as, as much as they could by saying, because I love to do my job and that I love to deploy and go fight overseas, that I was a warmonger and some kind of psychopath. Well, in demonizing me in that manner, then you are demonizing all of my brothers and sisters who've been fighting this war for the past 20 years, because, you know, we take pride in our country and we definitely want to go serve and we want to go deploy and we want to go defeat evil. That does not make us bad people. You, you shouldn't demonize us like that. I wanted to write the book in that way um, and just be as transparent as possible, um, sort of give a brief overview of um, my career. You know, I don't spend a lot of time on stories about deployments and this and that, but uh, more of so the fact of just how um, busy it is in the SEAL teams, how much you deploy, uh, what the families go through. You know, your my, my wife and kids served just as much as I did by holding down the home front. And so when they attacked me, you know, and tried to put me away for life. They were attacking my family. They were attacking my wife and kids. And, you know, that's um, where I draw the line. I always say, you know, the, the Navy or NSW could have punished me by myself alone um, and done these things. And I, I think I would have been okay because, you know, I was in the military. So you're sort of used to uh, taking shit. But um, as soon as they had attacked my family, that was it for me. You know, they, they crossed the line that I'm not going to put up with. And uh, so, we, you know, we talk about it in the book. I We call out um everybody that was involved in the book by name um we put out exactly what happened and uh you know and even the the cool thing about it is um while i was writing the book there's so much stuff that happened during this that i i turned to my wife and i was like you know no one's gonna believe this uh this is there's so much corruption so i wanted to be as transparent as possible so i decided to put qr codes in the book and basically you while you're reading it you can go ahead and listen to all the trial audio. You can listen to all the NCIS interviews. You can see all the evidence. You can see the text messages of, of the people that accused me and the way they were conspiring all the way up until the trial. I mean, it's all there. Um, and there is going through, you know, if something sounds too crazy or be like, oh, that doesn't sound like that could happen. It's that we put the QR codes and you can watch it yourself. Yeah. In fact, looking through your website, We'll reference that a little bit later in this interview, but it, it's a trip, man. EddieGallagherBooks.com. Um, you've actually got links to these guys testifying on the stand or yep. their NCIS examinations, um, you know, the interrogations that they have before, you know, they go to trial. Uh, yep. uh, wild. I've, I've never seen a crime book with actual links to audio from testimony. 
let's jump into the book. Um, the book starts with you in the brig. Where were you again when they came and got you? Because I found this very, very interesting. You were in fact, like working on being your best self. You were looking at retirement just a few blocks down the road. You were yep. doing all the kind of post-deployment things that somebody does to just get their head right. But explain to me where you were when they came and said, uh, chief need to speak with you. And, um, the next thing you're in handcuffs. Yeah. So, uh, I had, um, gone to a uh, traumatic brain injury clinic. It's uh, called Intrepid Spear. It's a branch off of NICO, but they pretty much uh, operators go there and not just operators, you know, um, everybody in the military can go there if you have some kind of traumatic brain injury or have been around explosions, car accidents, whatnot. Um, and so by the time I had went there, I was about 19 years into my career. Um, I had not reported uh, a lot of the stuff that had that my body had been through, um, you know, all the explosions, uh, everything else that, that we deal with. So I wanted to go get, you know, uh, myself treated and trying as much as possible before I get out. So I won't be a burden on my family. Uh, you know, so I went there and was definitely healing, um, going through the, uh, intrepid spear process. And about a week and a half into that, my command showed up and they, I think I was in meditation at the time and they came and told me to, you know, get up and that, uh, they had to take me to prison. I had asked why they could not give me a reason. They just said that the Admiral, Admiral Green had signed off on it and that I was ordered to go to prison. Uh, again, no reason. You know, I had I had I had a choice at that point. I could have put up a fight uh, and, you know, thrown a fit. But then I knew that that wasn't going to help help the matters any that uh, I knew how the military works. So I just sort of remained compliant. And really, I was thinking that somebody's going to see this as a big mistake and I'm not going to be in prison. You know, like they're going to come get me. Uh, and unfortunately, that didn't happen. Once you get thrown in that brig, uh, which is military prison, you are not getting out and all of your rights are taken away from you. And you're pretty much just another prisoner awaiting trial. Mm. Except the details you put in the book, I, I did find fascinating uh, that uh, when you were being transferred, they didn't treat you like any other prisoner. I think you referenced one of them looked at you like Hannibal Lecter because they used about five times the amount of people to get you from point A to point B afraid of this crazed Navy SEAL. And I mean, truth be told, you could probably wiggle out of any sort of restraint that, you know, some MP gives you that's yeah. never actually been trained the way you are. But a lot of emphasis that, because I was an Navy SEAL, um, I was dangerous, um, but they definitely over-dramatized it on purpose uh, to sort of create this narrative. Um, I mean, I was pretty surprised on the way they were treating me when I showed up. You know, they had me shackled from head to toe, uh, like like I was Hannibal Lecter, but they also thought I was Jason Bourne and I was going to, like, escape somehow. Um, you know, it, it was very uh, eye-opening to see just, you know, the the narrative that was put down to the prison before I got there to all the guards that I was this dangerous psychopath. And of course that's from the prosecutors and NCIS. And then I really got an eye-opening experience. Uh, I had a hearing in prison to see if I could get out. Um, it's like a formality. Um, and that's when they used my job against me. Um, every school that I've been to, every qualification that I've had was turned against me. They said that they could not write, they could not in good conscience, let me out of prison because I was a sniper, because I was a breacher, because I had gone to uh, Sears school, because I had done like they pretty much used every qualification in the book and saying it was a bad thing that I, I'm dangerous. And that's when I knew who I was like, this is completely backwards. Um, you know, the blood, sweat and tears I've given over the past 19 years to do good at my job, to, you know, constantly hold myself to a standard um, were now bad things. And now, they were using that to keep me in prison. Um, it was pretty crazy to watch. Now, simultaneously, your wife in the following chapter is talking about um, sort of things she'd observed in the community over the years. And there's this sewing circle, uh, also the term hate train. But essentially, as a former enlisted guy myself, you know, I can I can attest to the fact that like when we 
sat around. You know, they were they were lieutenants we liked. They were lieutenant commanders we didn't like. I mean, I lost a camera one time covering a, a story about surfing where I almost drowned. And, you know, I had to go to captain's mask because I lost the camera. I mean, nobody cared that, you know, yeah. I almost drowned. They were mad that I lost the camera. So there were certain LTs or certain people in the chain of command that you just knew they were jerks. They didn't look out for the young enlisteds uh, as we felt. But in this particular case, your wife talks about this hate train where people would sort of select somebody that they didn't like and just really pile on the crap. And I think it's at this point that this is where you're realizing now after the deployment to Mosul, maybe six months, seven months out from the end of that deployment, that there's this hate train going on and that people are really talking some serious smack. And it's more than just Chief Gallagher's a dick or Chief's too tough on us. Um, Can you just kind of paint for us a a little bit of the accusations that started sort of innocently and then ramped up to something just incredible, which ended up in a murder trial? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you you said it, you know, uh, a bitch and sailors, a happy sailor. So it's uh, on deployment and it's it's common for every deployment. You know, they're six or seven months long. Uh, Near the end, guys are tired. They want to go home. Uh, They're disgruntled because, you know, we've been sitting wherever we're deployed at an amount of time. And usually, you know, there, there is a, we call it a hate train or, you know, a bitch session or a gossip circle. Uh, and a lot of the time the leadership gets blamed uh, because they're the ones in charge. And, um, and it's happened on every deployment I've been on. Um, you know, I've, I've actually been one of the guys that's been bitching about the leadership multiple times, um, except with these guys, uh, they decided to take it a step too far, I guess. they. I mean, we had a meeting when we got back from deployment after I had heard all of the little rumors and stuff that they were starting, I pulled them all in, um, said, Hey, let's clear the air. Let's get this all out in the open. You know, this isn't going to do good for anybody. You guys keep on spreading this hate and discontent. But, uh, you know, after that, we, we had that meeting and, you know, at the end, everyone sort of agreed to like, go on, go, or at least I thought agreed to go on with their careers. And, uh, there was just a couple individuals in the platoon who really held a, um, held on to that, to that hate and discontent um, and decided to press it even further. And what these guys did is managed to grab a couple other guys in the platoon to join their cause. Um, and they, they started off with little rumors um, that I was dangerous, that I was too aggressive on deployment, that I had worked them too hard, um, that um, I was a thief, which that one really upset me because I had never been called a thief before. And that's the one I sort of confronted them on. I was like, I want to know what I stole from you guys. They literally could not come up with anything legitimate, uh, except that I had taken a Red Bull out of a refrigerator six months prior that wasn't mine, which I couldn't confirm nor deny. Um, it was it was very um, just petty, a lot of just petty complaints. And they went to the command with them. Um, the command asked them for uh, evidence that I had stolen, you know, or what I had stolen. Um, again, they could not produce anything. They just said that it was either they, they heard I stole something or somebody said I stole something again, no concrete evidence. So the command told them to move on, decompress from this deployment and move on. Um, again, they refused to. And about four months later, four or five months later, they came Craig Miller, who was my LPO went to the command and said, well, now we have something. Uh, he, he murdered a, uh, ISIS prisoner that we had, he stabbed him. So the command asked him, are you sure this happened? Yes. And he's like, okay, well then you guys have a duty to report this. If this is what really happened to NCIS, um, Craig Miller reported it to NCIS. And that's where this thing really went off the rails. Uh, we got a corrupt NCIS agent named Joel Rapinski that was in charge of the case. He once Craig Miller came to him and people can watch this on the, on the NCIS interview. Um, he starts off the interview by saying, your name will never come out. Your face will never come out. What you say here will not come out. It's all going to be locked away. Um, no one will ever hear this. So go ahead and say exactly what you want. This gave Craig Miller carte blanche to just say anything. And that's what exactly what he did. He lied multiple times. Um, you know, People can watch in the video. He's crying. It's uh, it's very embarrassing to watch, especially as a Navy SEAL. Um, you know, unfortunately, Joe Warpinski took advantage of these guys and really sent this case uh, to where it ended up. Um, he went around everybody, even my command, that I was guilty. They had all the evidence they needed. 
um, that there was a video of me doing such act, which was completely untrue. So the command bit off on it and then went around and told everybody that I was guilty. And it was just really a game of like telephone from there. You know, you, you got to think like it starts off at that small level. Well, then the command is going around telling everybody I'm guilty. Then these high officers are going up to the White House saying that there's a video saying that I'm guilty. And I mean, it really spread all the way to the secretary of the Navy or um, who ended up getting fired over the case because he was meddling in there doing an unlawful command influence and also lying to the president. I mean, this thing really got way, it, it's got way out of control. Um, it's very embarrassing that this happened, um, especially from someone that's comes from, you know, the NSW. And I, I, um, uh, I love the NSW. Um, I, you know, it's, it's where I was, you know, I'm from and, it was just embarrassing to watch my community act in such a manner. And that's sort of like, I, I think people are always confused or which I would be too. And like, how did these guys, how would SEALs turn in their own guy? Um, especially why would they lie? Um, and I tried to do my best in the book to explain it. Um, you know, I really dig into some of their characters, uh, just how they were. I mean, these guys were not your average SEALs. They were pretty weak. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. And today we're talking with retired Navy SEAL Chief Eddie Gallagher about his new book, The Man in the Arena, From Fighting ISIS to Fighting for My Freedom. The book documents his murder trial after his fellow SEAL Team 7 teammates accused him of killing a wounded fighter and various other war crimes. Gallagher was eventually found not guilty and also found open support for his case from President Trump. In this next segment, we'll talk about some of the grim details of the case and his assessment of his sealed teammates who turned against him. They did not want to be on that deployment. Um, this is their first combat deployment. As soon as the uh, bullets started flying, you could, they automatically were like, this is not what I signed up for. Um, I don't want to do this. Um, those, those words were verbalized on deployment, um, as well as I don't believe in this mission. We shouldn't be here. Those were also verbalized. Um, so you got to think like these guys, and I had a hard time understanding it, but these guys had come in through the Obama era, um, and they came in with a completely different mindset, um, than the rest of us have. Most of us have been in since nine 11, uh, especially the leadership. So it's a very different mindset. Um, a very different drive into why we're deploying, why we're fighting this evil. Um, and it, I think it sort of clashed, you know, to like two generations clashing. Um, and I think, you know, the book explains that as well. Yeah. And in fact, your wife even references that early in the book when you guys are having drinks at a bar um, somewhere, I believe in Coronado, and there's all the pictures of all the fallen seals and how she even noted that your contemporaries on the team's have a different sort of feeling than you do about their conviction to give their life for you and vice versa. So um, that's a fascinating de detail that unfolds. It's crazy how it escalates from like, look, chief's a jerk. He makes us work too hard. He takes us to dangerous positions. He's stealing snacks. He took a, <laughs> he took a red bull. He went into, you know, my care package and took my favorite cliff bar. I mean, those are all petty things. Um, the killing of the ISIS fighter. I've seen that video. In fact, you probably know the one I'm talking about journalist, Ali Jawad or whatever. Yeah. I mean, dude's conducting an interview with this young man who's yeah. literally laying there in a hell of a ton of pain. He's been lit up. He's he dying. Got caught. Yeah. He's dying. He got caught in a coalition airstrike uh, shooting at the Iraqis shooting at our teams. I mean, you know, yeah. he wasn't just, wasn't just passing by shopping for shoes that day. I mean, you know, he had a weapon, uh, but he's laying there. And even the journalist is like quizzing him with the microphone. And then turns him over to you guys. Of course, they turn over to the SEAL teams and take him to the FOB because he can receive medical attention there. You are a combat trained medic. The video stops and you're kind of over the guy. Yep. And 
you know, this was covered in uh, the Apple podcasts, the line. And I don't know if you're familiar with that as well, but. Um, yeah, they, uh, they definitely covered it. They sort of put their own skew on it. And I know that the, the last episode of the line, they came out with this bombshell thing, uh, trying to dramatize it, which in all reality, we had brought that up in court. We sh- already, uh, before the trial as saying that this was all done, uh, medical procedures, um, to pretty much let him die peacefully because the Iraqis, which they usually did is they took the bodies and hacked them up in front of us or around the corner, um, tortured them in some way. So it was a very quick, uh, quick decision, you know, when they brought him in, you know, it wasn't at the fob. We were still out in the field, uh, in a forward, uh, position hmm. and they brought the, brought him to us and they, if, there's another video that was presented, um, when they actually brought him to us and it, people translate it, the Iraqis are saying not in front of the Americans, not in front of the American state, which is what they were going to execute him. We decided, we're like, well, you know what, we'll treat him and let him go out peacefully. You know, we knew he was going to die. Um, there was no, we weren't medevacking ISIS fighters back then. We weren't taking them back to take care of them, but this was just a decision made on the fly. It's like, Hey, let's just treat him and then, you know, let him go out. So that's what we did. You know, I grabbed my med bag, um, started to assess him um, and started treating him as needed. You know, the video, like you said, shuts off about five seconds in. And that was done on purpose. Uh, NCIS had all the video um, and because there is a video of the whole all the treatments um, by T.C. Byrne and his helmet cam. Um, it just so happened when T.C. Byrne, uh, who was on the side of the accusers, turned in his computer with all the video, he deleted the, all the rest of the scene. So it just showed me coming up with the med bag. Um, mm-hmm. It's very, very vindictive of uh, what they did. And we brought that up in trial. Why, why are there missing videos? We, we had the files are like, we, they've been deleted. Why can't we watch them? And the prosecutors of course had no answer. They didn't want us to watch them because they knew it would prove my innocence um, that I did not stab this prisoner that he died from, you know, well, he died from the Hellfire missiles that we shot into him, but then he died peacefully from the after the medical treatments. So how is it that, and this is again all on your website, how is it that that one seal could have testified that he saw you? And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe yep. I heard audio from the court case where he says he saw you remove your hunting knife and stab the gentleman. And then there were others that said you were putting a crike in the neck to create an airway yep. uh, two radically different things, a stabbing motion to the chest versus, you know, I mean, a somewhat methodical procedure to create an airway there in the neck. Did that seal straight lie to your face in the courtroom? He lied to the whole courtroom. He lied to the judge. He lied to the jury. Um, he'd been lying all the way up into that point. Um, and this is the funny thing. So that was Craig Miller who, was the L- my LPO, which is pretty much the second enlisted uh, in command uh, of the platoon. And what these, he wasn't a very um, smart individual and not a very strong leader. So the two guys below him, Dalton and Delay, manipulated him into, you know, taking charge of this, uh, this rumor, you know, or this lie and making it go somewhere. So by the time it reached court and they had to go to trial, Dalton and Delay had backed out and said, oh, well, we're, we're not going to say we saw it now because we didn't. And so Craig was sort of forced to take that on and be like, okay, then I'll say I saw it, except he completely screwed up. And, um, and this is what happens when you lie. You have no choice but to make bigger lies on top of that the further along, it, further it goes. So by the time he took the stand, he uh, – and this was like the big turning point for me in the court. Everyone thinks it's when the individual admitted to killing the – ISIS fighter. No, this was the turning point is when he said that uh, I had plunged a knife into the guy's neck and the blood was spurting out like baby vomit. He had never said anything like that before. He completely made that up on the stand. And honestly, the the uh, picture of me holding the, the ISIS fighter with the knife is the best and worst piece of evidence we have. Um, you know, it's the worst because it doesn't look good, but it's the best because there is no blood anywhere on me. There's no blood on the knife. They did DNA tests on all my stuff, could not find anything. So his, you know, lie at that point was that, you know, blood was spurting out, just completely annihilated his whole case, like his whole story. Um, so that was, that was, yeah, he, 
I mean, these guys blatantly lied. Um, you know, they committed perjury. But the thing is, the uh, her prosecution gave them all the full immunity before they went and testified, knowing that they were going to lie, knowing that they were going to you know perjure themselves so that they wouldn't get in any trouble. Mm. And that's got to be something unique to military court versus civilian court, because I mean, military court, it's not uncommon. Uh, the this is how the military court works. Uh, it's how the UCMJ, it's a very broken system. It's corrupt. And then the process, it's all about getting a win. Um, yeah. They do not care about the, the service member. They do not care about the individual. They are just looking for that percentage, that 90 some percent prosecution rate. Hmm. My captain's masts were never for these kinds of stakes, but uh, I can say that I always felt though they didn't give me enough of a chance to present any evidence. No, myself, it, but uh, the, yeah. Also, as you know, if you do show up to an NJP board, to a captain's mass or to a court martial, you will be punished on something. You are going to be punished just for showing up there. You could be completely innocent and just, you know, they got me on the picture, you know, which is literally conduct on becoming a sailor is the charge. Right. So they knew like that was a BS charge. They, they were trying to get me on murder. Um, and then once they I was found innocent of that. They really threw the book at me for conduct unbecoming, sentenced me to four months more in prison, uh, which they, you know, I'd already served two and a half times that. And uh, they tried to take away my uh, my rank, my bust me down to E1, take away my retirement. Um, I mean, it really was just a uh, ego driven and just very childish of the Navy to act in that, in that manner. Let me ask about the picture if I can, um, yeah. just because I think it's the one thing that so many people know and kind of associate with this story, even if they don't know the details as we've covered thus far. But um, did you ever regret that moment of the picture the, with the caption and the sharing it among friends and the tweets and everything or the text messages? Did you ever regret the photo of standing there with the dead body of a terrorist in your hands and the caption? got him with my hunting knife yeah i mean i regret the fact that i sent that photo to a buddy um i regret that the fact that because i took that photo my family was taken out at gun my kids were taken out at gunpoint uh and my family was terrorized you know but at the same time i don't regret the fact of taking the photo like i don't care about that dude i don't care what it looks like um you know it's uh you're in a different mindset over there. And I, I can honestly say like the way I think about it now and the way I think about it when I'm over there in the midst of it is complete, completely different. You know, you're in a different, uh, like I said, mindset. And, you know, there was, that was a very chaotic deployment. There was dead bodies all over the place. Uh, I mean, seeing dead women and children on a daily basis, it just, you, you sort of get numb to it. And then, yeah, when you do kill the enemy up close or when you do like have them, you do feel pride in taking because they're evil. You don't look at them as human beings. They're just straight evil, especially after what you see they do to the civilians over there. Um, and I, I don't think Americans know or want to know exactly what they do, but it's, I can tell you that it's, it's definitely the definition of evil. So yeah, um, I, I regret definitely sending the, sending the picture to a buddy. Um, and then, um, but as far as, you know, the pictures that were taken, uh, you know, it happened, man. And I'm, I don't regret the, I don't regret the killing that dude or like us killing that guy with hellfire missiles or all of his buddies. I mean, I think that's, that's what we were over there to do. And we just took pride in it that day and, uh, probably celebrated in a way we shouldn't have. And I've heard from my colleagues, I've got SF colleagues, former Rangers I've talked to, talked to other operators. Um, and I know, I, I forget who said it, but one a battalion guy told me, uh, we're one jilted ex-wife and a computer hard drive away from seeing like a lot of things that show that this is not an uncommon situation. And that yeah. because of the technology that we're in the two thousands, the factors, GoPros on helmets, um, even the end of deployment videos, you know, probably include some unsavory images that I don't think the general public is ready to view, but are part of the gray area that is combat. And you know, it's easy on paper to say they go get the bad guys, but what that actually looks like in full color in three dimensional yeah. GoPro video is just pretty 
nasty. And I don't think a lot of us have the stomach for it. Hey, chapter 38 talks about Trump's tweet. And it was the first yeah. of several <laughs> It's responsible for you being released from the jail cell confinement in the brig to a more relaxed confinement where you could, of course, meet with your attorneys and everything. I've always wondered this. How did the president even initially get involved? Was it just his voracious appetite for reading the news and seeing it on Twitter like you and me? Or did or or did Andrea or was somebody of uh, had a way to to get to President Trump after you'd been incarcerated now for a few months? No. So my wife, uh, as soon as they had locked me up, she started a grassroots organic campaign on social media to put out the truth about what was really going on. She started telling people that I was in prison for no reason, uh, which was the truth, and that they were taking, you know, then they were denying me my medical visits. They were denying me my lawyer visits pretty much taking everything away from me. So she started this uh, Instagram grassroots campaign and got a lot of followers, a lot of people listening to the story. And then uh, my brother at the same time, who had prior uh, experience on Capitol Hill, was going down there, knocking down doors of Congress, trying to get people to pay attention to what was going on, which was harder than he thought it would be. But uh, eventually my wife got on uh, Fox and Friends to talk about what was going on. And she knew that the president avidly watched that show every morning. Um, she pretty much got on there and did her plight, um, about, you know, what was going on to me, um, and that we needed help. Uh, it wasn't until she, um, she got her, my brother got 50, uh, congressmen to sign a petition to let me out of the brig so I could properly defend myself. And that's when the president got involved. He, uh, sent out a tweet saying, let him out of prison so he can properly defend himself. And I think this is where people are confused. Um, he wasn't saying I was guilty or not guilty. He was just letting me have my due process. He was like, let this guy defend himself before trial. Uh, because of the hatred for the president at the time by half the country, um, that sort of turned my case into now everybody, if they, even if they didn't know about my case, now I was evil because they thought president, the president was evil, now I'm evil, and it became a, a lot more contentious. I, would, I was gladly willing to take that on. I was I was more than grateful for what the president had done. It definitely helped us out. You know, I was, I was definitely was able to um, see my lawyers just a little bit more, but what people don't know is when they released me from prison, the command, the Commodore at the time, uh, Rosenblum, who avidly hated, he was a staunch anti-Trumper, um, was ticked that the president had ordered me out of the brig. So he ordered me to be confined in a barracks room with even more constrictions. I had less rights than I did in the brig. So I could not leave that room. I could not have a TV telephone. I had to be in uniform. Um, I was not allowed to walk anywhere without escort. And I still was not allowed to talk to my lawyers. So that was still, we were still fighting for my rights at that point. And uh, it wasn't until the prosecution got caught spying um, on my lawyers and on the media to where the remedy for that, which, I mean, if it was civilian court, the case would have been thrown out and that prosecutor would have been thrown in prison. But since it's the UCMJ, the remedy for that is they let me out of confinement. And that was probably about a month before my trial. Mm. And I'm glad you brought up the part about the spying, because I couldn't believe that when that made news, that at the same time you were you know, being released to what sounded like more comfortable confinement, although hearing from yeah. you, it doesn't sound that comfortable. Uh, but, but, but then to hear that they were listening into phone calls or, or things of that nature, you get into that in chapter uh, 52 or 53 there. And then, then that, that carries us for about 10, 12 more chapters up until 65, uh, where you go through the trial. Um, quickly, just want to ask, you weren't a staunch Trump supporter. You weren't politically active before any of this went down, right? Not at all. No, I, I definitely I mean, when, when you as you know, you're in the military. I just remained, uh, you know, it's unpolitical. I mean, I just didn't pay attention to what was going on because I, I was going to be told what to do regardless and go fight where I needed to fight. Um, you know, during when Trump, but there, there wasn't, you know, you do notice a difference when you're in the military between the administrations on who actually cares about the military and who doesn't. Um, and I voted for Trump uh, when he ran, but I definitely wasn't. Uh, out there being vocal or, you know, this is who I'm voting for. It was just, you know, I liked him. I was behind how he, you know, how he presented things. I liked that he spoke his mind, uh, that he wasn't a politician. 
and so yeah i i voted for him and then it yeah i find it pretty pretty uh interesting that you know now this happened to me and then he got involved which you know thank god he was the president at the time because i can tell you with the current administration we have now or the previous one before president trump that they wouldn't have paid you know attention at all okay now moving forward you go from chapter 53 to the early 60s uh there about the trial itself and you break down some of the things you've already mentioned um the analysis of the picture, the fact that the video stops short. Um, uh, there, the, there was one part of the trial where they said that, um, you know, as a sniper, you were, you were too heavy-handed. That that you would often go after non-combatants, and um, in particular, uh, someone describes a shot um, from some position across a river, I believe, and. Mm-hmm. During the trial, I believe it was a witness for the prosecution actually said that he was the one that took the shot. Is that what gets us into the chapter where Pinsky gets shelled? Was that that damning evidence where their own witness basically shot a hole in their boat? Uh, well, I mean, there's they, <laughs> that happened multiple times during this trial uh, that were the prosecution's own witness you know, pretty much shattered their case for them. Uh, You know, you had Corey Scott admitting to killing the ISIS prisoner. And then you had uh, Dalton and DeLay, who both tried to collude with the story that I had shot um, a non-combatant and that they had both witnessed it, except that when on trial, they were not, and I knew they were going to say this beforehand, they were not in the same building as me. They were about 250 yards away um and that they did not seem to pull the trigger they actually don't know if i shot um but the delay then just like craig miller made up some more evidence made up some more stuff on the uh, stand saying that he saw vapor trails out of nowhere um and that when he said that you know i even looked over at the jury when he said that which was full of uh marines that had been to combat they all were very confused and perplexed by you know that statement and it just showed you know he was there grasping at straws um it showed that they had no idea what they were talking about um and then yes there was another uh, witness that got up there and said i actually was with eddie when he shot so said individual and that person was isis that came out of course the media didn't report that at all there was People that came and testified for me that completely negated exactly what these guys were saying. Guys from the platoon that came up and said these guys were lying. Um, all of that was not reported uh, during my trial. Mind blowing, mind blowing. Um, of course, the trial ends and you are acquitted. And yep. um, President Trumpkin gets involved because you know that's where you get into the chapter. I believe it's uh, prosecution's over, but the persecution continues. Um, President Trump again had to get involved, maintain uh, your trident and to keep you from being demoted. Talk to me a little bit about the persecution. And this is you know, maybe where you can answer for Andrea, too, because I know it wasn't just you that felt persecuted here. This affected your whole family. Share with me a little bit about that chapter. Sure. So, I mean, you got to think that the Navy had put all this time and money into trying to put me away for life. Uh, I mean, they they got the media involved. Um, there was collusion with the media and, you know, we have all the evidence on that, um, which is why we're in a lawsuit with the Navy right now, but because they had lost the trial and they took it as a big embarrassment, uh, they then continued to come after me after the trial. Um, you know, they were, like I said, they were trying to take away my retirement, um, pretty much like my 20 years never existed and they were just going to kick me to the curb. Um, we were not taking that. So we, we, we were fighting back on that. The command, um, and it's the Naval Special Warfare Command, which, uh, was Admiral Green and, uh, Master Chief Harley at the time had banned me from all the SEAL teams saying that I was not allowed anywhere near them. Um, they had me checking in at some supply building down the street. And every day it was like a different game. I'd show up. They would, t- you know, tell me to go move all my gear to one one place to another. It was all for no reason. It was all just to get me to do something. You know, um, I just kept my cool the whole time. And then um, it wasn't until the president had called me um, and said that, "Hey, I'm going to let you retire with everything you earned over the past 20 years." He did not pardon me. He just said, "You will you will retire with this rank of chief." with everything you've earned, you know, this is all a mess. Um, and he knew more about my case than I think most people did. Um, 
He, he really delved into it. He knew all about the lies and corruption and deceit because he has gone through obviously similar situations. So I think he really, uh, he found a similarity. Yeah. So when he got involved and said, Hey, you can retire, you can retire. Then the Navy came after me the next day, um, which is, this is actually pretty interesting. I did a, <laughs> I did a Fox news uh, interview the day the president had called me just to talk about what, you know, what we talked about on the phone. And uh, I was talking to Pete Headseth. And at the end of that conversation, before we aired off, I was like, I said this, I said, I will, I am expecting full repercussions from my command for this. And Pete, you know, was like, Oh, I can't believe you said that. And sure enough, the next day I go into work and they said, Nope, now we're going to take your trident. Now we're going to do this to you. And so it just kept going. I mean, the, the ego of the Navy is, you know, pretty big. Um, they, they're not going to admit that when they made a mistake and it's pretty sad that they they're willing to just keep pushing forward to hang one person out to dry to make, you know, even if they're in the wrong, they're doing it to make a point that you don't mess with the institution. I think we prove that the institution is not as strong as they think it is. Um, and that you do have a voice and you do fight, you can fight back. Um, these, these officers that are in charge are just human beings. Their rank means nothing. They literally are just people that stayed in the military long enough to pick up that rank. And now they can make decisions that impact not only service members, but their families as well. Um, and you have to stand up and fight back against that, which is what we did. Right on. Um, as we close, just wanted to, uh, bring up a couple things, man. I heard a great podcast with you and Andy over on the cleared hot, a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I love Andy Stumpf, man. That dude's yeah. awesome. You had said that you'd been going through a lot of therapy kind of after this, as you're writing yeah. the book. Um, and in one line during the interview, you said that um, early in the SEAL team days, you know, you didn't process a lot of stuff. You just kind of you know, stick it deep down inside. And I mean, it's probably not exclusive to seals, right? I mean, it's men. Yeah, it's men. <laughs> it, it's a lot of us on earth. I mean, we just don't like dealing with the nasty of life. So we lock it away. Um, and, and, and we just think it's not going to go anywhere. It's just going to be there. But you had said um, something I found very interesting. Uh, when you thought about your fallen brothers, that oftentimes you would think of them on the following deployment and, and you would go for vengeance. And I'm thinking, is that a mindset that could lead people to believe that a more senior person on a special operations team has the bloodthirst because they've gone to multiple deployments now at this point, and they're angry over things that the younger, greener guys haven't experienced? Uh, I mean, it, it, it depends on what context you take it in. I mean, when I'm saying, you know, I didn't process my my brother's you know deaths. Uh, the same way that I would do now. Um, yeah. Like then I just use it as, as fuel to want to go back and keep fighting, um, you know, and just keep defeating evil. Um, and that was, you know, yeah, the mindset I had, I was like, these people did not, they didn't die in vain where they, they died for a righteous cause. And uh, I'm going to co continue to, you know, further that cause, uh, which is get rid of the, rid of the uh, world of evil. Um, you know, and if you want to yeah, call it vengeance or, which is, you know, what's, that's the word we use back in the day, especially after 9-11, you know, this is vengeance. So like, here's payback for what you did to our country. And it's the same mentality that I have every time one of my brothers died over there. It's like, okay, well then you took one of us out. Now we're going to take 10 of you out. You know, it's, it's the, that's the mindset. Um, but, you know, and I don't think it's a, you know, it's definitely not the uh, healthiest uh, way to process it, but that is the way I processed it, um, through my career. And, you know, uh, I've had to deal with that over the past year, as far as just dealing with the actual, you know, everything I've shoved down, um, all the feelings that I've shoved down emotions, you know, that bench, when you get out those, those places has nowhere to go, but come out. Right. So you have to learn how to deal with that, which is what I did this past year, which, you know, it was, was huge for me. Mm -hmm. Do you think there should be a cap or a limit on the amount of times that operators can deploy? I mean, heck, let's just even say across the entire infantry. I mean, should there be a cap about the amount of times you have to go and stand in front of the ugliness that is war? That's a hard question, man, because, you know, everybody's different. Um, you know, you can have, you can take one guy, he goes on one combat deployment and that's it for him. You know, that's, he can't, take anymore you can't process it 
then you have, I have friends that are on 13 combat deployments and they're seen to be doing fine. But you know, the one truth is like, if you touch war, it's going to touch you back. You are going to have to deal with it. Whether you deployed once or 14 times, eventually you're going to have to like sit down with yourself and really process everything that you had done. I do think that they need to do a better job of watching over the soldiers, Marines, SEALs, you know, spec, spec, special operators that go and do deploy, they need to do a better job of treating those guys as they're deploying. Um, I think that, you know, they should have uh, better options, uh, especially for, you know, healing TBI or dealing with those things. And then, you know, before, and the big thing I, um, I think they need to work on is before you retire, before you go through transition, they should have a list of treatments um, and say, hey, here's the treatment before a year before you get out, you will do three or four of these, um, pick them and force it on them to actually have to go do those treatments a year out. The problem is, as you know, the military is a big machine and it'll just keep turning and it'll, you know, it'll lose, it'll use you to the very last end, um, to the day before you get out and they're like, well, see ya. Um, and then you're on your own to figure it out. And that's what I've seen since I've gotten out. A lot of, I've seen a lot of my friends who struggle uh, after they get out. It's it's not uncommon for guys in the military or, or women to when they get out um, to struggle. And I would definitely that's like a huge um, thing that we're taking on, especially with uh, our nonprofit, the Pipefitter Foundation. That's going to be a pillar that's added on as to helping guys transition. And, you know, I give the guys the same advice when they're about to transition as I as I do to guys about if they want to go to buds and that's just don't quit. It's going to be hard. It's not an easy thing, but you're going to have to work through it and just don't quit. There's going to be highs and lows. Um, just like, you know, when we were going through buds and everything else, but you know, you just got to keep, keep your head on straight and, and push through it and be open and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. To which you've done some work with that. And I was interested also to hear on Andy's podcast with you um, about the hyperbaric oxygen chamber. How many yep. times did you do that? Because I've reported on that before from Andrew Marr's book and uh, that film, A Quiet Explosions, that came out last summer. Share with me what the hyperbaric oxygen chamber was like um, and what it did for you. Uh, it's So I actually found a place here in Destin, uh, Dr. Van Sant. He owns a the hyperbaric oxygen chamber uh, therapy place. He has about four beds. Um, and I, you know, it's a uh, it's not cheap. So I, luckily I, uh, Debbie Lee from the mighty warriors foundation, um, helped us, uh, pay for the treatments. And I did about 65 of those to two a day. So you pretty much go there, you get inside the chamber, uh, for an hour at a time, they just take you down. I want to say to like 15 feet, it might be another, you know, a different distance. Uh, I can't remember. And you pretty much sit there for an hour and just chill. Um, it's supposed to, you know, that that uh, air when you go down to depth is supposed to help heal uh, parts of your body and brain. Um, I don't know the exact science behind it, but I, I definitely noticed a difference when I was doing it. Uh, it didn't. It, I, I more noticed a difference when I was done. So while I was doing it, I was like, this isn't doing anything. I don't feel anything. Um, but it wasn't until about a week after the treatments, I noticed I was like, oh, I'm definitely I, more clear headed. I don't have the, this fog over me. Um, so, it, and I definitely, I felt healthier physically as well. I definitely recommend it. Um, it's done wonders. I actually sent my dad, uh, down there because he, uh, was displaying early signs of, uh, Alzheimer's. And so we got him a bunch of treatments and it did wonders for him as well. We saw huge marked improvements. Yeah. And in my previous reporting, from what I understand too, it's just something about like, um, it decreases inflammation in the body and inflammation can be such a killer, uh, whether it's an autoimmune issue or whether it's a, a like a, a pinched nerve issue. Um, you guys, especially, you know, with all the stuff you've had to carry, I'm sure have so many pinched nerves. It's, it's a miracle. You, you know, get out of bed every day. Um, also I read about a 10 hour trip in Mexico. Um, psychedelic. What is it again? I began. I began. Yeah. Share with me that because you and Andy talked about that. And I thought that was for lack of a better word, a trip, a 10 hour, uh, you know, session where you get a little bit chemically inspired there and then you roll for hours. So, uh, I have a good buddy, uh, Marcus Capone. So Marcus and Amber Capone, he was a seal. Um, he had gotten out, uh, years before me 
and uh, was struggling. Um, and you can actually hear his story on the latest Sean Ryan podcast. He goes four hours into it, but uh, he was struggling. Um, him and his wife were at their wits end. Um, she actually, she's actually the one who found this treatment and begged him to go try it. He did came back a changed person that like completely changed his life. Um, so they, I think the first thing he said, he's like, this needs to be done for other guys. Like if other guys don't know about this, they need to do it. Um, so they started uh, the vets program and they pretty much take guys, special operators down there um, and go through this treatment. Uh, my wife and, you know, obviously I knew Marcus and uh, we I talked to when I had gotten out, I've talked to numerous people that had gone and done the treatment. Um, so my wife and I decided that uh, it would be definitely a good thing to do, after, especially after seeing all of the uh, marked improvements from all of our buddies that had gone through it. So, yeah, I, I decided to go do it. I went down there. It's uh, it was, you know, I was definitely nervous because uh, I heard it was a very it's a very intense. It's the strongest uh, psychedelic you can do. It's way stronger than ayahuasca. Um, they call it the nuclear dose. Uh, it's the, pretty much the strongest dose you can get. And they realize that for special operators, that's exactly what they need. Um, you know, we're not going to go to three years of therapy, intense therapy, and get everything out. This is pretty much three years of intense therapy in 10 hours. You take it, you before you, everything was, is treated with reverence. You know, they have a shaman there, they have doctors, they hook you up to an EKG. Um, they have, I have other SEALs there that have been through it that are watching over you. You take the two capsules, you put on a uh, blindfold, like a sleeping mask and just lay down and wait for it to uh, pretty much kick in. And, you know, it, um, it's different for everybody. I had a very uh, different experience than the three other guys I was there with, but it pretty much uh, takes you, it took me to the beginning of my life um, and I watched myself as a baby and all the way up till now. And you can sort of delve into certain areas of your life. Um, and what it really does is it, it um, cleanses you of all the trauma that you've had since childhood to now and uh you know it makes you it, everything that you've stuck we've talked about that you have stuffed down and like oh i'm not going to think about that it brings it right in front of you and it's like you will deal with this um and you come out of it with i felt like a weight was lifted off me i felt like i had clarity on a lot of things and um you know it's it from that point on it's you know it's work it's still work you still have to you know deal with some stuff but it sort of gives you a platform you like okay this is how i should feel this is how you know i should feel about this so cool and i'm so glad to hear you share some of these alternative modalities because i'm all about it man anything to keep people off uh the meds this is the healthier alternative i know it's mm. like I think it scares people because it has, you know, psychedelics attached to it and it's sort of taboo, but you know, it comes from the earth and it's been, we've been using it for years, thousands of years. I mean, yeah. and so, I mean, it, it works and if it keeps you up, you know, the uh, big pharma, then I'm all about it. And it beats this because I'm here to tell you post heart attack and post pinched nerve in my neck. And um, right now I'm taking about, I don't know, like five or six different medications that's my ritual de la habitual. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm ready to try all kinds of things. Uh, last thing I wanted to touch on, and that is uh, probably the most important thing, but I noticed at the very beginning of the book, your wife's listening to a podcast about the story of Joseph yeah. and uh, an amazing kind of parallel to what actually unfolded in your real life. How important is God in your life? And how does, how does your faith work into your daily life uh god is the most important thing in my life um it's what has gotten me to this point in my life you know he's and he's definitely the center of our family um you know that's we're a very faithful family faith-based uh we you know we try to live as good christians um and that, i mean honestly that is the one force that got us through this whole mess. Um, I put that in my book, uh, exactly the, you know, when I felt God take, take the weight off me, uh, when I was in prison and I gave everything to him. And I'm telling you that's, I can't stress it enough that God is, he has a plan for all of us. And sometimes that, you know, that plan is, might not be your plan, but, uh, you just have to put all your trust and faith in him and he's going to get you through it. Um, and that's, 
that's pretty much what I had to do. I had to give all my faith and trust in him in a, in a prison cell. Um, and he took that, he took that from me and guided me through. I'm not saying it was, you know, uh, peaches and cream the whole time, but, um, it, it definitely, I felt his presence along with me the whole way. And, you know, and God has blessed us, you know, he's, and that's the other thing is, you know, this whole thing was as much of it was a nightmare as it was, it was a blessing as well. Um, you know, it, it gave us a platform afterwards to help other people. Um, which is why we started the, you know, the nonprofit the pipe Hitter foundation. That's, um, what they, you know, there's that, that saying, you know, what they mean for evil, God means for good. It's, uh, that's exactly what this is. You know, they, they tried to put me away for life. You know, we fought back, we won. And then now we're going to use the platform we have now to help other people that are caught in similar situations. In so much of Jesus's teachings, there's the part about forgiveness. Is that something you still work to reconcile? Is that something that you still kind of have to work with a lot? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I forgive them, but you know, deep down inside, you still have the, the emotions and the, you know, exactly. And it's very hard, especially when I think of what these guys did and what it caused to, you know, to my family. Um, that's, like I said, that's a line that, uh, you don't cross with me, but, um, I'm definitely, you know, every day working on trying to forgive, working on trying to move past it. Um, you know, so we'll see. And to that, we are all works in progress, brother. Uh, myself, I'm getting baptized actually at the end of the week. This is why I was oh, really, congratulations. yeah, I was really excited to ask you that question at the end because uh, it just, um, we're never done. We're never finished. We are all constant works in progress. And, um, and I salute you going through everything you have. And in the context of being open enough to share your faith. Uh, that's a huge, a huge step. Uh, you're also helping uh, the next generation through the Pipe Hitter Foundation. Um, I'm assuming this isn't about cannabis. Uh, share yeah. with me a, a little bit about what the Pipe Hitters, uh, so, about what the foundation does. Sure. Uh, Pipe Hitter Foundation, um, you know, we named it that because, you know, uh, in the military or law enforcement or whatever, usually, if you're asking about somebody and they're like, oh, that guy's a pipe hitter, um, then that's usually a guy you want with you. You know, that's a that's a good compliment. Um, so we started this foundation um, after, you know, everything that we went through, um, you know, not when I was locked up. I met a lot of people in that brig that don't belong there. A lot of people in that prison that, you know, that didn't have an Andrea Gallagher to stand up and fight for them while they were dealing with all this. That didn't have a Sean Gallagher. You know, not everybody has. Um, a strong wife or a wife that's willing to speak up and fight back. So we decided to step in and be like, we will be that voice for you. So pretty much what the pipe hitter foundation does is we take on active duty law enforcement and first responders. Um, if they're being unjustly accused or, um, going through the corrupt system that we did, we will review your case. And if we give it a thumbs up, like, yes, we will help you. Then we will provide legal funds for your defense. We also provide emergency relief funds to the family as they're going through the stressful time. And then we will publicly advocate for you if you want it. Um, we also have, you know, we do not, we do not give lawyers. Uh, we don't have lawyers as part of our board, but we do have a list of lawyers that are vetted that we, that are good that you can choose from, but that's on the person themselves to pick out their lawyer. Um, and then, like I said, we're adding a pillar on um, for the mental health aspect as far as, uh, you know, taking care of the guys and the girls as, it, you know, as they go through this and then when they're through it. Because as I witnessed firsthand, you know, you there are repercussions from going through a stressful uh, time like that. And you definitely need help on the back end. Right on. Well, I really appreciate it. The book is a thrilling read just out this week the man in the arena from fighting isis to fighting for my freedom retired navy seal chief eddie gallagher um thank you brother really been good getting to know you having this fun conversations like i said something i waited the last couple of years to do and um your two cents spends a good dollar here i appreciate that brother thank you man
All right, so that does it for this week's show. Thank you for listening. Now, we'd love to hear from you, so follow us on Twitter at IonVeterans, or you can reach me at PhilBriggsVet. I'm always down to get your hot takes and spicy memes, and I'd love to talk to you every week, so please like and subscribe. Hell, even give us a review of the show, because the comments and reviews really help us tailor the show to you. Again, I'm Phil Briggs, Navy veteran and reporter with ConnectingVets.com in Washington, D.C. And I look forward to talking to you again on another episode of CBS Audio's Eye on Veterans. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye on Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.